Welcome to the second in the uh, Philip Roman uh, lectures uh, by our distinguished visitor and guest, uh, Professor uh, Ian Morris of Stanford University. Um, I won't repeat everything I said in the first lecture, but you come, I think, as our ninth of uh, Philip Roman, Ian, following Paul Kennedy, Chen Jian, Gilles Capel, Neil Ferguson, Ramachandra Guha, Anne Applebaum, Tim Snyder, and Matt Connolly. So, wonderful company to be kept, and certainly you're part of that. Um, this lecture has been made possible by the generosity uh, of Manny Roman, whom I again want to thank this evening for all the support uh, that he's given us. I won't go through all of Ian's uh, biography, it's far too long. Um, all I can say is that Ian doesn't deal in years or even decades or even centuries, he, he deals in thousands. In the, uh, in the first lecture, we had a theory of everything. It was kind of detailed, microscopic approach to history. That's irony, by the way. You can laugh. It is permitted. Um, maybe I delivered it badly. Uh, tonight, we have each age gets the great powers it needs, just 20,000 years of international relations. Uh, and next year, when Ian comes back, we get each age gets the bloodshed it needs. That should be fun. And uh, <laughs> you've got some great titles here. And Tuesday, 15th of March, each age gets the inequality it needs, again, in a minor form, 20,000 years of hierarchy. Ian, we had a wonderful lecture first time. I'm sure we're going to have the same tonight. I wonder if we could all give an analysis. Welcome to Professor Ian Morris to talk about each age. Well, thank you. Thank you for that um, very kind welcome, and thank you to Mick for that very generous introduction. And I would also like to thank uh, Emilia and Bastian for looking after me so well, and uh, Mr. Roman for supporting these talks, and lots of other stuff too. And all at the LSE for turning out here are in what I guess is your final week of your term, when there's probably much better things, much more important things that you should be doing. But here you are anyway. So, uh, well, it's, it's great to be here again. Um, like Mick was just telling you, this is the second lecture in this series um, that I'm doing. And in the first one, I was basically asking, uh, oh, here's the thing, good, okay. Basically asking, um, can we learn lessons from the past? And I came to the conclusion that the answer is yes, we can. That long-term history reveals to us big patterns in the way human societies have developed. Um, these big patterns make it possible for us to search for explanations of why, why there are these big patterns. And if we're able to find explanations, um, we are also potentially able to talk about where these big patterns, where these big forces might take us next. So there's a sort of predictive element uh, as well. I talked about... Um, the importance of geography in driving these big patterns, about how geography drives social development, but at the same time, social development drives what geography means. Uh, the history becomes this sort of complicated back and forth between geography and development. I talked about how um, it seems to me there are sort of always two big stories playing out um, in history, a sort of local story and a global story. That it, um, the social development going on at a local scale combined with globalization as societies get bigger and more complex and take up more space. 
So that's what I talked about last time. Um, the, the theme for the, the Roman professorship is um, history and international affairs. And so tonight what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk very much about the international affairs part of this, uh, this history and international affairs pairing. And I am going to, actually I forgot, uh, yes, here's my introductory slide. Uh, so I'm going to be talking, uh, really asking two questions tonight. Um, the first question, can we identify really long-term patterns in the system of great powers? So that's the basic question. Second question, if so, if the answer is yes, can we, uh, and three subparts, identify the forces underlying these patterns, explain them, and finally forecast where the trends might take us next? So those are the two questions I'm going to be talking about um, tonight. The answers, fortunately, to both are yes. Uh, so it keeps it all nice and simple. Um, I'm going to be drawing uh, tonight chiefly on thinking that I started doing with two books that um, I've already written. I'm still sort of thinking about these things, but two books that I've already written, which I think both have tremendously clever covers. I wish I could design book covers like these, but I can't, so I leave it to people who can. But I think they have very nice covers. So talking chiefly about the uh, um, sort of where I'm going now with ideas I developed while I was writing these two books. And I'm going to suggest to you, try to convince you of the truth of this, that basically when we look at the very long-term history of international relations, what we see is um, four basic patterns through time, which uh, I summarize for you in this slide, giving them extremely cryptic titles that only I can understand, which I always find is really good idea when you're giving a lecture. Um, describe everything in terms only you understand, then you look clever at the end when everybody else understands them too. This is, this is the plan anyway. So um, the, the first of these that I'm going to be talking about is um, the world of foragers, that human beings, you know, as, as most people know, human beings were foragers, hunter-gatherers, for well over 90% of our time on Earth. Um, and this is a world characterized by tiny international relations. Um, then I'm going to talk about the age of agriculture. Um, human beings have been farmers for uh, pretty much the rest of the time since we stopped being foragers. The age of agriculture is characterized by small international relations. Then I'm going to talk about Inner Rim and Heartland, which I will tell you what those are later on, characterized by big international relations. And then Inner Rim and Outer Rim, characterized by huge international relations. So that's the basic plan um, for the evening. I'm going to be suggesting that the story of international relations has basically been driven by two things, um, scale and geography, the two big things shaping the larger pattern. Also going to be suggesting that and to make sense of the, the big history of international relations, you've always got to be thinking on two levels, uh, the, the international and the internal. You know, how societies are changing internally and how they relate to each other as, as separate entities. And the two seems to be the two always go together. And um, with my international relations colleagues at Stanford, I sometimes find myself a bit frustrated by the, um, the, the rage level that can be generated between the realists and the constructivists. Those who think what goes on inside matters and what those things, what goes on inside doesn't matter. Seems to me it's kind of nuts to think either of these extremes. But I will try to explain um, that as I go on. So, okay, I'm going to suggest that uh, the long history of international relations characterized by these four phases, and my plan for tonight is a very simple one. Talk about the four phases, then draw some conclusions. And then I promise I'll stop. Okay, so first, um, as you can probably guess, first what I want to do is talk about the first and by far and away the longest of these phases of international relations that I see, the age of hunter-gatherers, the age of foragers. So yeah, there we go, the, the, the world of foragers. 
Um, now, foragers, as again, you know, most people are well aware of this, foragers, hunter-gatherers, these are people who are characterized by supporting themselves, getting their energy from wild resources. So moving around the landscape, um, eating wild plants, hunting wild animals. No, no domesticated um, sources of food to support them. And being a forager, getting your energy or your food supplies from these sources, it has a number of um, major consequences for how you live your lives. Um, one of the biggest of these is that because um, the pursuit of wild uh, energy sources only yields very small amounts of energy from the environment around you. One consequence of this is that hunter-gatherer societies notoriously are very, very small-scale societies. Um, here, a couple of pictures, in this case, um, African hunter-gatherer societies. At one time, of course, uh, through most of human history, all human beings lived as hunter-gatherers. One of the big global patterns over the last 10,000 years has been the gradual pushing back of people who live by foraging into places in the world that are less attractive to farmers. So they're um, gradually um, pushing back until nowadays there are very, very few foraging societies left in the world. And they tend to be in places that um, agriculturists just don't want. Uh, so you, you find hunter-gatherers in the, say, in the, the Congo um, basin, you find them in the Amazon basin, you find them in the Arctic and uh, to some extent the Antarctic. Uh, places that the farmers don't really want. Um, so, yeah, hunting and gathering and yields very small amounts of energy. The societies have to be very small because you can't support um, enormous numbers of people. You can't support dense populations. Um, overall populations in hunter-gatherer societies, typically groups, dozen people or so, and if you're a forager, you might spend the great bulk of your life surrounded by the same dozen people. Um, if we go back to, say, 20,000 BC, uh, when everybody in the world is a hunter-gatherer, there's probably about one million human beings on earth, ballpark figure, you know, compared, of course, to 7,000 times as many now. So very, very small-scale societies. They're also highly mobile societies. Um, if you're going to support yourself from wild plants and wild animals, you have to be moving around constantly. As different plants ripen, animals migrate around. Very, very mobile societies. Now, result of this for the, the kinds of things I'm interested in tonight is that um, relations between hunter-gatherer groups operate on a tiny scale. Um, it's a very, very small-scale world. Most of your life, like I say, conducted within a group of, say, a dozen people or so, um, you will meet up with larger groups of people. And uh, this is something that's been observed again and again in hunter-gatherer societies. You'll have periods of the year where larger groups come together. Here's a, a picture from um, the American Southwest back in the 1930s. The Shoshone, one of the things they were famous for with anthropologists was their rabbit hunts. They would get together um, certain times of the year when the rabbits were all breeding particularly aggressively. And uh, groups of Shoshone would come together and have these big organized hunts to, um, to catch and eat lots and lots of rabbits. And these hunts, um, you didn't just kill rabbits on them. You also, you swapped marriage partners, you had festivals, you had a bunch of stuff. And pretty much every hunter-gatherer society in the world, no matter how small scale most of your life is, you'll have some kind of larger gatherings like this. And um, geneticists have explained very nicely why this has to be. That If you live in a group of a dozen people and exchange marriage partners within that group, you're going to get brutally inbred very, very quickly and you'll all disintegrate from nasty um, recessive genes. You have to have larger groups you can come together with to exchange marriage partners. Otherwise, things are going to go dramatically wrong. 
So these little tiny groups do relate to other groups outside them. They do, they do have international relations, uh, we, um, if you want to call it that. They do have intergroup relations, but they tend to be episodic uh, relations between the groups. When they come together, they will say come together, um, exchanging marriage partners, exchange gifts with each other, tell stories with each other, hold feasts. Feasting is a really big deal. Here we see some um, Amazonian feasting um, going on in the 1970s. Uh, so you, re- you have a lot of mechanisms for relating to other groups. But um, one of the major mechanisms for relating with other groups is clearly always fighting. And this is something that's become, I think, more and more clear in the late 20th century as more anthropologists started taking violence among hunter-gatherer societies more seriously. Fighting is a major form of conducting intergroup relations in the hunter-gatherer world. Some of these relations could operate over very long distances. Um, In the European Neolithic, going back before 4000 BC, we find people trading stone axes down chains of exchange that extend for well over 1,000 miles. So these networks can extend over very um, substantial differences. Networks of trade and judging from the anthropological evidence, um, networks of diplomacy as well. So uh, the tendrils can go out a long way, but most groups interact most Um, most dynamically, most often with other hunter-gatherer societies living within a few days' walk of their their own home range. Now, on the fighting part of it, this is something I'm going to come back to in the third of these lectures, the each age gets the bloodshed it needs. Um, this has been a particularly controversial thing among anthropologists in the last few years. How much do hunter-gatherers fight? The, <clears throat> some people believe they don't fight very much at all. Others, like me, believe they fight an awful lot. But uh, because that's sort of a big topic in itself, I thought I would sort of just put that to one side mostly for today. Um, so what I've been saying so far, I've been you know, generalizing very broadly about most humans through most of human history. Um, inevitably, of course, that sort of generalization means there's a lot of variations going on as well. Um, hunter-gatherer societies do come in multiple forms, not just the tiny groups that are, are extremely mobile. And some of, these, uh, some of these variant types of forager societies, um, these are quite well known. This is a picture of a very well-known group um, from the Pacific Northwest, the Kwakutl, who are... Uh, lived a fairly sedentary lifestyle, lived in villages that could have dozens or sometimes even hundreds of people living together in them. They, unlike most hunter-gatherer societies, they could be quite hierarchical. They'd have kings, they would practice enslavement. You sometimes have hundreds of slaves owned within a single village. Um, Remarkably different from the kind of thing we normally think of as hunter-gatherers. And yet they did live by exploiting wild foods, wild plants and wild animals. And the explanation for why we get this sort of variation, this picture actually taken, I don't know if you can make out the, the, the writing on the buildings here, but taken at a point after um, European Americans had established pretty firm contact with the Quackutal. One of these buildings says, the one on the right says Boston, just above the door, and the one in the middle says cheap. Um, so we have traders' buildings here set up among the Quackutal when their societies are already beginning to change under contact um, with American society. Um, but the, the explanation for why you get this sort of variation seems to be driven very much by the kinds of environments different hunter-gatherer societies live in. And there's a small number of places around the world, um, overwhelmingly maritime environments, where hunter-gatherers can generate enormous amounts of food. And in these, society, in these regions, you tend to get unusually large groups of hunter-gatherers living together. They're unusually sedentary. They don't migrate around anywhere near as much because there's just a lot more food to base your village on. And they tend to be more 
hierarchical as well. And um, so this, uh, it seems to me this is a gen <clears throat> generalization we can make about the hunter-gatherer societies. The, the richer the resources of the environment they live in, the more the, the groups become big and sedentary, the more hierarchical they become. Most hunter-gatherer societies are extremely mobile, um, having relations just with the groups immediately around them most of the time. So that, I think, that, that is a quick characterization of the bulk of the history of international relations throughout the time humans have been on the planet. But these sorts of arrangements began to end um, around the end of the last ice age, so 10, 12,000 years ago, ballpark we're talking about here, when global warming sets up in the world and different ways of living begin to become possible. Um, becoming a farmer, living off domesticated plants and animals, was really, uh, seems to have been just impossible during the Ice Age. Once the Ice Age ends and the world begins to warm up, it becomes possible to domesticate plants and animals. Once that happens and people begin doing this, begin becoming farmers, everything begins to change, including international relations. Now, one of the biggest reasons that things changed so much is that the population of the world just exploded after the end of the last ice age. This is a very rough schematic um, set of estimates of what global population was like between 8,000 and 1,000 BC. It goes from maybe 5 million people on Earth about 10,000 years ago to something like 120 million people on Earth 3,000 years ago. So this, I mean, obviously we're talking about an extremely long period of time here, 7,000 years. But the population of the world increases by uh, more than an order of magnitude. Um, also, though, uh, one thing that needs to be added to a, a graph like this, this graph is just giving us a millennium by millennium set of estimates of what world population was like. The reality was actually much less even and smooth than this. And the next slide is a graph um, produced by Professor Steve Shannon at UCL, the Institute of Archaeology, um, using radiocarbon dates to try to get uh, a sense of, just looking at Europe in his graph, but try to get a sense of... Uh, what shorter-term fluctuations were like. And this is the graph that he came up with, where the dotted line basically represents a sort of smooth uh, exponential population growth we saw on the last graph. The solid line, um, uh, I won't go into exactly what, what's being graphed on the vertical axis here because it all gets quite complicated, but the solid line um, basically is showing you the, the wild swings you get around this long-term smooth exponential growth. For the people actually living during these thousands of years, life was characterized by booms and busts. You get these great population explosions followed by catastrophic collapses as thousands and thousands of people would starve. So it's a very wild ride. The long-term picture, though, is um, population grows enormously, the sizes of communities grow enormously, and people settle down more and more, live in the same place for longer and longer periods. And this is a couple of pictures of one of the most famous of the sites of the early agricultural period, Shatlhuyuk in Turkey, excavated by my Stanford colleague Ian Hodder. And at the left you see a reconstruction of what the site might have looked like around 6,500 BC. At the right you see them in the um, process of excavating the site. And I should say that that is not what a normal archaeological site looks like. Um, because Shatlhuyuk is such an important site, one of the most important sites in the world, they have all these corporate donors, and they get to build this great plastic lid over the site so that everybody gets to dig in the shade. It's absolutely beautiful. When I was digging in Sicily, we did not have a big plastic lid over our site. We dug in the sun, and we sweated all the time. Um, so, yeah, remarkable site. A very, very special site. But um, this is the 
sort of town that increasingly is emerging around the world. As, as the farming age proceeds, settlements get bigger and bigger. People need to develop more and more complicated structures to organize their lives as the world gets more and more crowded, bigger and bigger. Um, agriculturalists face a lot more problems than foragers do. There's a lot more you've got to do to keep an agricultural society going as it gets bigger and bigger. Um, basically, uh, social scientists would say they're confronted with more and more collective action problems. So they've got to solve ways of working together to make things keep running. Here, a few examples, Roman solutions to collective action problems. Um, an aqueduct marching mile after mile across what's now the deserts of Tunisia. Um, a model of the... Uh, Mussolini actually had this model made. A model of the city of Rome in the first century BC. It had something like a million people living in the city of Rome. Um, over on the right is um, a shipwreck being excavated under a parking lot in the city of Pisa. I was exposed by this parking lot they needed to build um, in an old silted up harbour. Romans had to do all of these sorts of things to keep their society going. These are problems that people who lived in tiny foraging societies never had. The result of this, of course, is the Romans have to um, produce more and more sophisticated ways to solve their collective action problems. And one generalization we can, broadly speaking, make about the age of farming is that solutions to their collective action problems overwhelmingly tended to be, um, the solutions overwhelmingly tended to involve hierarchy. Here is hierarchy. You cannot get much more hierarchical than King Tut. When everybody agrees that the king is not just like a god, but the king actually is a god. We're in a very, very hierarchical world. Egypt was basically the, the, the most extreme society in terms of deifying their rulers. But almost all agricultural societies are massively more hierarchical than the farming societies. Now, um, uh, oh yeah, okay, I figured out where I am again. Okay, so um, th this sort of society, um, it begins in a particular time and a particular place, just as the, the age of foraging had as well. Foraging began in East Africa when the first modern humans evolved, modern forms of foraging evolved with them about 150,000 years ago. Farming, um, agricultural societies, these begin in a part of the world that um, I like to call the lucky latitudes, although some people think we should actually call them the unlucky latitudes. But it's a band of latitudes in the old world that stretches from China to the Mediterranean, in the new world from Peru up to Mexico. And this is the place where the world's first farming societies develop, basically because this has the densest concentrations of plants and animals that can be domesticated. So wheat, rice, barley, um, I can't think of any more crops now, uh, um, sheep, pigs, cows, all, all of the major forms, are, almost all of the major forms of domesticated plants and animals, their wild ancestors had evolved within the lucky latitudes. Basically, it was easier to start being a farmer in these zones than anywhere else in the world. So this is where farming first began. States began first in the lucky latitudes, complex societies with governments ruling over them. The world's first great empires also appeared in the lucky latitudes. Here is a map, a slightly blurry one, unfortunately, showing you the um, overlap between the great empires of the ancient world and the lucky latitudes. It's almost a perfect fit between the two. This is the part of the world where the process toward complex societies began first. So this is the part of the world where we first see great complex empires that have to interact with each other in entirely new ways. 
And as the agricultural age goes on, um, the societies, the complex organizations people create get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so this graph just shows you selected Eurasian states from 3000 BC to the early first millennium AD. And you see that the trend toward larger and larger political units very, very striking in this. Because as we go through time, as you get larger and larger units, the way they interact with each other, their international relations, change dramatically as well. Now, um, the, the sort of societies they're creating, as we go through this 3,000-year period, from the, the, the first states through to the, the Roman Empire, the sort of societies they're creating get increasingly internally complex and sophisticated as well. And to generalize broadly about what they're like, um, I think it's useful to use a model, a, a, a sort of abstract representation of this, that I like to call Gelnerland. Uh, and I call it Gelnerland after the first of the great names of the LSE who I'm going to introduce tonight. Many of you, I'm sure, will already be familiar with this one. Ernest Gelner, who was a professor of philosophy here at the LSE before he moved um, to Cambridge University, where I was then a graduate student, to take the chair of anthropology. Well, I must say, he terrified me, absolutely terrified me. Um, but Gellner, um, you know, Gellner did a lot of very wide-ranging historical studies, and he suggested in one of his books called Nations and Nationalism that you could actually reduce almost the whole of recorded history to one diagram. You get the whole thing on less than a page, which I thought was wonderful. And this is the, the Gellner diagram of the entirety of the history of agricultural societies. And I think it's kind of a useful diagram for thinking about how international relations evolved. And basically what it is, obviously, is a, a vision representation and he says this is supposed to represent for you the internal structures of pretty much all agrarian states that ever existed and the, the, the key things we're looking at in this diagram um, he says up at the top of the diagram and uh, can you still hear I'll, I'll yell from over here up at the top of the diagram we have um, different kinds of elite units uh, elite groups of so military groups administrative clerical commercial but elite groups tend to be very wealthy um, but their great characteristic says Gellner is that they operate across the whole of the polity across the whole of the state whether it's the Roman Empire or something really tiny the elite groups operate across the whole area they share a common culture the different different layers within the elite will feud with each other but they, they share this common elite culture so if you're a Roman aristocrat, you can go from you know, northern England to Syria, having the same kind of dinner parties everywhere you go, speaking in Latin or Greek, eating larks' tongues, making jokes about Homer. Everything will be fine, as long as you stay within your elite set. Now, th this elite group, it's separated off from everybody else in Gellner's diagram by uh, this here, the, the thick double line, sharp division between the elite and everybody else, what Gellner called laterally insulated communities of agricultural producers, what the rest of us would call peasants. Um, and, <laughs> Gellner says laterally insulated. What he means by that is peasants don't get out much. You live in your village. Uh, different villages in a state might speak virtually different languages. Peasants don't get out much. Um, and more to the point, says Gellner, the guys at the top don't go down much. If you, you went across the Roman Empire having your lark's tongues for dinner everywhere, that's fine. But if you go five miles from the great estate you're having dinner on, you're going to find people who don't speak the language anymore. They have no idea what you're talking about. They've never seen a lark's tongue in their lives. Um, they're, they're living almost on a different planet. There's such a gap between the elite and everybody else. And he says the social structures are set up precisely to perpetuate this gap between the elite and everybody else. These are rigidly stratified worlds. Um, 
very different in a number of ways from the kinds of world that we, 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 we kind of live in um, nowadays. So the, the agrarian age is like a, an agglomeration of these sorts of societies um, with very particular internal relations and very particular external relations as well. Um, they are able to project power much more than uh, hunter-gatherer forager societies were able to do so, able to reach out much more into the world around them. Um, so they, they come at the Roman roads, carts with, wag with oxen to pull them, stuff like this. They're able to project power much more. But judged from the sort of world we live in, their ability to project power through space is still very, very limited indeed. So what tends to happen is um, you get that the world will be broken up into these regions dominated by one great power, but the regions are really very, very separate from each other. Um, international relations in the agrarian age tended to be largely predatory. Um, tax and plunder were the major ways for societies to dominate one another. You go and steal everything from other people or institutionalize it and steal from them over a long term. Um, there certainly were large-scale networks of trade. And uh, here's a, 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 a quite a famous map of the sort of networks, that, uh, overlapping networks that grew up across Eurasia in the 13th and 14th centuries AD. But compared to the flows of wealth generated by state power, by military power, the tax and plunder, the trade revenues were generally relatively small in the agrarian world. And because, um, because no one is able to project power very far by, by modern standards, what tends to happen is that, particularly in the lucky latitude zone, that we see the old world version here, within the lucky latitudes, you tend to find these zones breaking up into um, four or five major regional um, concentrations of power. Um, and these sort of concentrations, they do shift, but they are very long-lasting. So we tend to get one area in China, another in India, another around Iran, and then the western end, the, the Mediterranean and the Near East, sometimes it's all one area, like under the Roman Empire, sometimes it's two separate systems. Very few people are able to breach the lines that divide these regional systems within, within the lucky latitudes. Alexander the Great, he's one who does. Um, the, the early Arab caliphs, they, they do this again, but very, very unusual. Um, the Roman Empire is really the only one of these great systems that was a major sea power. Power and proje power projection almost entirely based on land power. So international relations within the lucky latitudes tend to be um, defined at this sort of regional level. And you'll get empires going to fill up a particular region. Outside the lucky latitudes, um, we don't have societies of this complexity. Uh, international relations are much more like um, what uh, I was talking about, the, the hunter-gatherer age. But in an important sense, the world is gradually getting bigger while, while, um, the, the, as agrarian societies develop. And what I mean by this, coming now to the, the, the third of my topics, the inner rim and the heartland, what I call the, the big age <clears throat> of international relations, to, to understand what happens, um, starting really in the first millennium BC, I want to turn now to the second of my LSE greats tonight, um, if I can make the point to go, Halford Mackinder. Uh, I think he was the second director of the LSE, was he? Second director of the LSE, explorer, geographer, adventurer of all kinds, very good administrator as well. Um, 
Mackinder was one of the founding fathers of modern geostrategic thought. And in 1904, he delivered a very famous lecture to the Royal Geographical Society, suggesting that we could make sense of the entire strategic history of the world in terms of one map. You may have noticed with Gellner and Mackinder, I really like the one map, one diagram approach to history. It makes it so much more understandable. But this is um, an actually slightly messed up version of Mackinder's map, which I drew some lines on to make it a little bit clearer. But Mackinder said, you want to understand the, the long-term history of international relations, um, what you've got to start from is the recognition that Eurasia, um, I have a pointer, I think, here, so, uh, oh, but I can't make it work, so never mind. Um, well, I, I think you probably all know where Eurasia is anyway. Eurasia is um, the, the, the heartland, the core of the world system. And he says Eurasia divides into three broad areas, the heartland, roughly speaking, inner Asia, what he calls the inner rim, so a big part of Europe, South Asia, much of East Asia as well, and then the outer rim. And the, what he meant by inner and outer rim was inner and outer relative to the great band of oceans, the Atlantic Ocean, Indian Ocean, Pacific Ocean. He says this tripartite geographical structure, this explains everything that you need to know. Now, the reason Mackinder says this is that the inner rim more or less, although it's a bit messy on this diagram, but the inner rim more or less maps onto what I was calling the lucky latitudes, the zone of the great empires in ancient times. And, Mackinder points out, from the beginnings of civilization for thousands of years, the states of the inner rim, um, oops, I didn't want to do that, the states of the inner rim sort of dominate international relations. Of the first 5,000 years of recorded history, all the world's great powers are nestled in um, this band here, and to a lesser extent, in the band in the New World as well. South of the inner rim, we've got impassable oceans. The ancient societies could not really use these oceans very much. North of the inner rim, we've got the long band of steppe grasslands where it's very difficult on these arid lands for people to build large, complex civilizations. Now, the, the reason I think Mackinder's map is so helpful for understanding this long-term um, pattern of international relations is that, as Mackinder pointed out, during the first millennium BC, the steppe grasslands go from being an area where very, very few people can live because they're so arid, really only grass grows there, very difficult to live there. They go from being a kind of a barrier on the northern edge of the Lucky Latitudes to being a sort of highway that links the whole of the old world Lucky Latitudes. And the reason this happens is that the people living on the, on the steppes um, develop and evolve horses that are big enough to carry people around all day. You start getting um, horse-based nomadic cultures on the steppes in the first millennium BC. I mean, modern horses do not go back to time immemorial. They go back to somewhere between 4,000 and 1,000 BC. Once that begins to happen, the steppes are converted by horse nomads from being a barrier to movement to being this kind of super highway of movement. And here is the most famous example of this Genghis Khan and the Mongols of the 13th century um, AD. Horses, are, what, what happens here? People breed big horses on the steppes. It's difficult for people to live on the steppes because only grass grows there and you can't eat grass. However, horses can eat grass and you can eat horses. And the, the um, large-scale colonization of the steppes, initially it's by horse herders who eat the horses. Then they domesticate, they breed the bigger horses they can ride on and they become mobile horse nomads, moving herds of horses and cattle around the steppes and basically being parasitic off the animals who are being parasitic off the grass. And the grass, of course, is parasitic off solar energy, um, using photosynthesis to convert that into energy that everybody else can then use. 
societies based on, on, horse, on horses and uh, horse mobility, these become enormously militarily powerful societies. The horse gives them enormous striking power. They can move very quickly over very, very long distances. And the first millennium BC, this is the initial age, initial great age of asymmetric warfare. Uh, and when, um, when the U.S. invaded um, Afghanistan in 2001, um, a lot of us in ancient history got phone calls from journalists asking us, is this the first time the world has had to deal with asymmetric warfare and what's now going on in Afghanistan? To which the answer was no. Um, the, 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 the horse nomads of ancient times operate in really very similar ways to modern terrorists. You, are, you move too quickly and strike too hard in one particular place for the lumbering great powers of richer states to catch up with you and fight you properly. Horse nomads were brilliant at doing this. The great empires of the lucky latitudes never really figured out how to deal with them. The, the other group of people who um, sort of independently invented asymmetric warfare was pirates, because everybody loves pirates. Uh, pirates do exactly the same thing. You just move around really quickly. And great states can crush pirates if you are prepared to spend enough money doing it. And this, I think, is the sort of long-term pattern with the asymmetric warfare. But in ancient and medieval times, the big pattern you get, because you've got these horse nomad societies that are very difficult for ancient empires to deal with, international relations changes fundamentally. And the long-term pattern is that Horse nomads gradually break down the great empires of the lucky latitudes. This graph, I love this graph, I should say. I mean, it's actually over, um, oh, I guess the captions didn't come out very well. Completely, even less understandable here than usual because the captions haven't come out on the right hand side. But what we're looking at here is. Um, uh, ignoring this purple line for a second, what we're looking at is four different regions of Eurasia. The red line is um, roughly the Middle East, the green line is India, the blue line is Europe, and the yellow line is China. Um, we've got dates along the bottom from 1 AD to 1400. On the vertical axis, the scale of the largest states, going up to 12 million square kilometers. And what the graph is showing you is the, the wild swings up and down in the size of these states. Basically, the size collapses when horse nomads from the steppes come in and annihilate the state. Um, horse nomads are terrible at replacing these states, good at destroying them, terrible at replacing them. The size then goes back up again after the horse nomads go on and start plundering somebody else. You get these wild, wild swings. But the overall trend, the purple line that you see, this is just a, a straightforward linear regression of the size of, um, the size of these states. Overall, from 1 AD to 1400, the size of the largest states in the Eurasian lucky latitudes goes down and down. And um, the, the, the fit between the lines, the fit of the regression is actually quite good and would be better still were it not for the giant red spike in the middle, which is the early Arab caliphates, which is slightly misleading because the, the bulk of the areas that are conquered by the early caliphs, A, had nobody living in them, and B, the caliphs didn't actually control them. So this is slightly misleading. The, the overall effect, long-term decline in the size of empires. Um, as the heartland, Mackinder's heartland and the inner rim get more and more entangled, the heartland generally has the better of it, the upper hand. But the, the societies of the heartland, guys like Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, they're not very good at taking over empires and running them. So the, the general effect is um, toward weaker and weaker states, more and more broken down. You get a kind of unstable equilibrium between the inner rim and, and the heartland across these thousands of years. 
And in some ways, uh, we can say that the, the development of societies in the inner rim kind of gets stuck. International relations change so that the system becomes very chaotic and very unstable. You're getting constant breakdowns. Um, Eurasian societies are, in many ways, less developed in 1400 than they were in the year 1 AD. While this is going on, though, the world continues getting bigger. And um, in many ways, societies outside the, the NRM are sort of catching up with these NRM societies. We start to get the first complex state societies in sub-Saharan Africa, like Great Zimbabwe you see at the top, um, really sort of imperial-scale societies in South America, like the panorama shot you see of one of the Inca sites at the bottom. Similar things, though, going on in Hawaii, Southeast Asia, Japan. The rest of the world is sort of catching up when um, Eurasian NRM gets stuck uh, in this um, relationship with the heartland. Now, that all changes very dramatically from about 1400 or 1500 on, which brings us to the final one of these phases of the uh, international relations being dominated by a struggle between the inner rim and the outer rim, at which point the scale of the system goes from big to huge. And this, this transformation really happens between about 1500 and 1800. And I've noticed international relations, um, people are interested in the history of international relations, often they'll say the most important thing happening in this period is the rise of the Westphalian state system in Europe. But uh, it seems to me that is really dwarfed by the developments going on at the larger scale. And I would say two really big things happen between about 1500 and 1700. Um, both of them driven by technology. And the first big technological change is the invention of real guns. And we see what's probably the oldest proper gun in the world up there at the top, uh, found in China, probably made in the year 1288. Um, guns eventually allow the people of the inner rim to close down the steppe highway, to put the steppe nomads out of business once really effective guns get going. At roughly the same time, the invention of ocean-going ships, ships that you can get in and you can rely on them to take you thousands of miles and bring you back again. As the guns are closing down the steppe highway, the ships are opening up an oceanic highway. So what, what happens? Um, Mackinder uh, points out what happens because of this. Inner rim societies start reviving, becoming more powerful. They use their ships. Um, sorry, outer rim societies start reviving and becoming uh, powerful, um, get control of ships and guns, and use these to exploit the world's ocean to oceans to project their power into the inner rims, changing the global distribution of power once again. And the way it works, uh, around the year 1500, nomad horse archers could still normally defeat armies from the inner rim if they had to fight. Around 1600, nomad horse archers could still sometimes defeat armies from the inner rim. But by 1700, nomad ho horse archers could hardly ever defeat the inner rim armies. Guns had got so good that they basically shut down these cavalry charges, put, put the, the steppe nomads out of business. Roughly the same time, around, say, 1,400 ships on the outer rim can almost never get to other continents. Um, it, you, they just can't reliably travel long distances. By 1,500, they sometimes can. By 1,600, they usually can. It's a great shift in how land and sea-based travel um, are working across this period. Now, it plays out differently in different parts of the world. Between 1500 and 1700, Europeans on the outer rim are able to overwhelm the Americas. European diseases annihilate the population. Europeans basically take over the Americas. Um, 
in um, the Asian inner rim, uh, Europeans are much less successful at first. They don't have the advantages of diseases. And so even though their ships and guns allow them to come to the coasts of the great empires of the inner rim in, uh, uh, in Asia, as late as about 1750, the Europeans have usually only got very small toeholds around the coasts. And this map, like most maps you'll see of 18th century empires, this actually wildly exaggerates the scale of European control around the shores of the Indian Ocean, uh, and actually in the Americas too, in the 18th century. Europeans are just kind of clinging on up till about 1750. But then it all changes dramatically. Um, after about 1750, Europeans, especially the British, overrun India. After about 1850, Europeans, especially the British, um, overrun uh, East Asia as well. Um, between about 1850 and 1950, there's a dramatic change in the global distribution of power. The inner rim is massively, utterly dominated by the outer rim to the point that Europeans are able to project power not only all over the inner rim of, uh, of Asia, but even through it. In 1904, when Mackinder was giving his lecture at the Royal Geographical Society, uh, using the map I showed you, at exactly the same moment, British troops, or actually mostly Indian troops uh, led by the British, are marching into Tibet, projecting power directly into the heartland all the way from the outer rim. So a total transformation of the, the global distribution of power. Now, by this point, the Industrial Revolution is increasing outer rim power, and that's something I'll talk about a lot more in my fourth lecture. Um, but uh, the, the nature of outer rim societies is being dramatically transformed. The Gelnerland model is beginning to disintegrate. The societies liberalize. This old idea of a, an elite completely cut off from the mass of the population, this is beginning to fall apart out in the outer rim. Um, the nature of international relations is changing dramatically I think, and going hand in glove with this. You increasingly get a global system in which predation to predatory relationships are still important. I mean, here's a, the British Empire looks like in 1898, and predatory relations still very important. But increasingly, they're not the most important way of relating. And this is, of course, what Adam Smith sees in the 18th century, that the wealth of nations comes from the size of the market you're able to build up, not from your ability to conquer and plunder and tax. And these transformations really, really shake up the system of international relations. Increasingly, to prosper in a global market, what you need is not societies you've conquered that you can tax, but wealthy trading partners, other countries rich enough to buy the goods that you produce. And the British find, in, in order to make the 19th century international system flourish, what they need is to make it more possible for other countries to enrich themselves and join this system and industrialize too. By the end of the 19th century, um, countries like, uh, well, again, we seem to have a slight problem with the, uh, the captions here, but what we've got, the green line is the United States, and we're looking here at uh, GDP um, uh, measured on the vertical axis, dates along the bottom. Well, the, the blue line is Britain, uh, the green line is the United States, the red line is Germany, and the yellow line is Japan. And what we're looking at here is the way um, Britain's trading partners, the way Britain gets much, much richer in the 19th century, but the trading partners get much much richer still. In the 20th century, let's see what happened uh, to the captions on this one. In the 20th century, we see rather, oh, we've got the captions this time, rather similar uh, sort of trends playing out. The USA in blue, China in red, um, the next three biggest uh, economies in the world in green, blue, and purple. Very, very similar sort of pattern um, to the uh, 
to the 19th century pattern. But this time, it's the Asian inner rim, which has been the main beneficiary of being enriched by being drawn into this global system of international relations and trade networks. One of the big consequences of this has been the destruction of the old Gelnerland system. Societies are finding the more they adhere to this sort of model of how they work, the less well they're able to flourish in a modern, internationalized, globalized system. Now, I think this is one of the big reasons why the inner rim has been so amazingly violent during the 20th century. Um, in the first half of the 20th century, particularly uh, in Europe, in the second half of the 20th century, particularly in Southeast Asia and the Middle East, we've seen incredibly violent struggles. And I think they are driven largely by this transformation of um, the system of international relations, coupled with the, the transformation of the internal organization of societies at the same time. And I think we have to see this going on at three levels at once. Otherwise, you're never going to understand any part of what's going on. One is the global level struggle between the different regions that Mackinder identified. One is the struggle, the second is the struggle between nations within each of these regions. And then the third is the struggle going on within each of these nations between social groups, as we see the, the disintegration of the old Gelnerland um, kind of model. Um, Inner-rim societies have reacted in a wide variety of ways to these transformations. One reaction has become being a sort of revolutionary, extreme, revisionist reaction, um, rejecting the power of the outer rim. So say something like thinking things like the 1949 communist takeover in China or the 1979 revolution in Iran. Other extreme is leaderships that say, we're going to try to cut a deal with the outer rim, reshape our societies, recognizing that we live in a world dominated by the outer rim. Sometimes people will um, throw themselves into this project so much they try to remake their societies into something like a Western liberal order. Other times you'll get leaderships anxious to preserve at least some things about their traditional societies while still being able to function within the larger global order. And so we yeah, Extreme cases would be, say, like Japan in the 1870s, where um, the Japanese seriously debated in their parliament whether they should change the national language to English so they would fit into the global system better. Decided not to, um, but adopted you know, many, many Western educational voting institutions. Um, so many variants on this have been tried. The Japanese um, solution, probably the extreme case. In the middle, you get countries like, say, say, somewhere like Saudi Arabia, which goes to enormous efforts to lean in a Western outer rim direction while still preserving some very, very, what I would call archaic features of the society. Overall, though, I would say that across the last, um, last 70 years, the big uh, the big pattern we've seen is that, on the whole, societies in the inner rim that lean more toward the outer rim and accept an outer rim-dominated world have generally fared better than those that lean away from it. Okay, to wrap up then... Um, oops. Oh, here we go. To wrap up then, my, my second question, which I will deal with much more briefly than the first, you'll be relieved to hear. Second question, um, okay, well, so can we, uh, so the third part of the second question, can we say anything about where these trends might go next? And so I'm going to close by sticking my neck out for um, just a couple of minutes, talking about where things might conceivably go next. Uh, and of course, there's you know, enormous controversy over any kinds of predictions on these larger directions. But I, I do think that the trends are fairly, it is fairly clear where these trends are directed. 
So I am fairly confident that by about 2050, the societies of the inner rim will have um, transformed themselves into societies much more like the outer rim. Uh, I'm also fairly confident that by about 2050, um, the inner rim will have really pushed the outer rim societies out. Since at least 1950 or so. I think this has been very, very clearly going on. The outer rim dominance of the inner rim societies has been on the decline, I think, almost everywhere. I think that, will be, that process will be almost complete by 2050. But I don't think we're going to return to anything like the, the sort of pre-Columbus, pre-1500 world where inner rim societies dominate the, the entire planet, or they're the most powerful and richest societies. Um, I think that we are living in a, just a very, very different sort of world now. Uh, 2015 to 2050, I think, is going to see the destruction of the last remnants of Gelnerland, this sort of very traditional way of organizing societies. But what we also uh, have to remember all the time is that it's going to be a process also of increasing scale. Scale, I would say, has been the big driver in transforming relations of inter international relations across the last 20,000 years. And this, um, the um, increasing growth of scale is just going to continue across the coming generation. I think we should expect there to be um, rapidly increasing social development within countries, rapidly increasing globalization. I mean, there are some people who believe that we're seeing the end of globalization. I, I don't think that's likely to be the outcome. I think we're likely to see intense struggles continuing at the global and the regional and the local scales. This is not going to go away. Um, I'm pretty confident that we should anticipate by 2050 a new global order emerging that's different from any of the preceding ones. The, the relationship we've grown used to where the outer rim societies dominate the inner rim, I think that's going to go away, but I don't think it's going to return us to anything like the older system where the inner rim uh, has by far the, the richest, the most powerful, most important societies in the world. Obvious question to end with is, of course, well, what will the form of a post-huge post global order look like? What, what that would look like? Um, will it be something like an old-fashioned nation, you know, a single political organization dominated from one place? Um, I tend to think the answer to that is no. Uh, I'm going to talk more about that next time, but I tend to think it's very unlikely we're going to end up with anything like a world government uh, coming out of the next 30, 40, or 50 years. Will it just be the sort of thing we've been seeing develop over the last 50 years, a sort of increasingly integrated system of liberal markets? Will it just be that, but on a bigger scale? Like, say, you know, the, the 18th century revolution, the integration of the world through trade, is that simply going to continue in the sorts of ways we've been seeing so far? Again, I'm a little bit dubious about whether, um, whether that's the way uh, that the world is going to go. Is it going to be something like what a number of um, uh, people in China in particular have suggested? Uh, um, a world where we have a sort of constellation of societies not exactly ruled by, but still dominated and organized by a single center, um, in their suggestion, usually China as a single center. And again, I tend to think, tend to think probably not. 
Um, is it going to be something completely different? Um, and I tend to think here the answer is yes. Uh, here we're going to see probably the end of the Westphalian system that um, people have been used to for 350 years now. I suspect that uh, we're going to see change on a scale that dwarfs everything we've seen in the history of international relations earlier. But that, again, is something I'm happy to talk about after or I'm going to be talking about in my lectures when I come back to the LSE later. So let me wrap up then. Um, it seems to me that each age gets the great powers it needs. And what I mean by that is the, the, the scale of societies determines to a great extent the way um, societies are organized internally and the way they relate to each other. Each age gets the great powers it needs because across 20,000 years of growth in scale, new problems and new opportunities are constantly being created. Societies that see and accept the new realities around them and adapt themselves to the increasingly large scale of the world, those tend to flourish. Societies that don't, don't. And that, I would say, that is the big lesson of the long-term history of international relations. And only those who learn it get to be great powers. So thank you very much for listening. And I'll stop there. Ian, do you, do you want to remain up standing? Oh, or? Sure, yes. Yeah, sure. Okay, thanks very much. Um, well, very popular lecture here at the LSE, if you quote Gellner and Mackinder. Um, and well done on your predictions. Uh, you're a very brave man. Donald Trump will be happy to know that China's not going to take the world over. Um, let's, uh, let's open up very, very quickly. Must, I think there should be one or two questions. We've covered 20,000 years of history, and you've made about eight predictions. So uh, who's, let me start at the top. Where's the stop? Where are you? Hand up here, please. Man in red with the yes, you. Yeah, yeah. Where are you going? You've come down. Yeah, you're the man with the mic. Just give it to the person in front of you, could you? Yeah, please, thanks. Is anybody uh, else up there with the mic? With you? Give it to the person next to you, would you? Thanks. Okay, right. We'll start one and then two. Take two. Yeah, please, sir. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the talk. Um, you didn't... Um discuss, I think, the uh, idea of nationalism much. Uh, that's a very <laughs> dominant ideology that exists in our time, so much so that we find it difficult to even see it. Um, nationalism, nationalism hasn't always existed, and since you're in a position of making predictions about the future, I'd like you to comment on where you see nationalism going in the future and what might replace it. All right, well, no nation states either. Uh, yeah, one up there, please. I don't know. I'm down here. You, um, you I'd like to go back to uh, Mackinder. And one of the things that he says towards the end of his lecture in 1904 is that Russia is only the tenant of, uh, of Eurasia. And he sees two main challenges. One, of course, is from Germany. If there was some kind of link-up between Germany and Russia. And, of course, we saw that playing out in the first half of the... Um, of the last century. But the other one is if China could modernize itself. And he thought that that would be done by the Japanese. Of course, that didn't turn out like that. But he thought that um, China offered a unique combination of being a rimland power with a large maritime frontage and extending far into uh, Central Asia. And it seems to me that we see this happening now through... Um, uh, China's plans for the new Silk Road, and also its plans to push the United States 
back beyond the second maritime line. And of course, the third figure that you didn't identify was Spickman, and he pointed to the importance of the United States and its ability to preserve a balance in Eurasia. And that really is what we're seeing, a conflict between the United States and its transatlantic and trans-Pacific partner, and China pushing across Eurasia through the new Silk Road. So I think that's what it's all about. very good. A little bit of tough-nosed realism at the top of the lecture theatre there. There you go. War to come. (laughs) What happened to nation-states and nationalism? Okay, well, a couple of very broad-ranging questions there. Yes, I mean, um, of course, the, the, di- the Ernest Gellner diagram that I showed comes from his book Nations and Nationalism, and uh, the, the, point of, the, the point he had in making that diagram was to try to show uh, to anyone who still doubts it, you know, nationalism is not this sort of primeval, timeless thing among human societies. He suggested that nationalism is something that you, you only really get when the boundaries of a political unit, the, a political unit coincides with the boundaries of cultural, ethnic, self-defined ethnic uh, units as well. So when you know, people, people in, the nation, in the state of Germany think of themselves as a German nation, then you can have German nationalism. And he was saying that in the pre-modern societies of the type um, we saw in that diagram, that sort of thing doesn't really exist because uh, by definition these states are multi-ethnic states where the peasantry uh, will generally feel themselves to belong to a completely different ethnic group from the rulers who just, you know, people off a different planet, really. And so in Gellner's point, which I think was a very good one, was that um, nationalism becomes a major force in world history at the point that the, um, the geographical and the, the cultural, political boundaries start to coincide, and that's not something that really starts happening until the 18th century in Europe. Um, and I think the, the point I'd like to take away from that is that nationalism is something, it's a historically specific thing. It developed in a very particular set of of circumstances, and as those circumstances change, we should expect nationalism to go away to a great extent as a major force in the world. And obviously nationalism is still a major force in the world, but I would say less so than it was 50 or 100 years ago. And my guess uh, is that across the, ne- across the 21st century, we're going to see nationalism mattering less and less and less. And I think one, to, to my mind, although again, all of these things are very controversial, of course, but to my mind, one of the clearest signs of that is the increasing importance of both organizations above the level of the nation state, things like the United Nations and for all of its woes, the European Union, um, but also organizations below the level of the nation state. The the, the remarkable amount of power that a number of NGOs now have, um, many corporations now have. And um, to me, it seems fairly clear that even within our lifetimes, or within my lifetime, a nice long one, um, we've seen a major shift in power away from national governments toward other forms of organization. And so I tend to think that is just going to accelerate across um, the next 100 years. But the, the question about Mackinder, yeah, I mean, Mackinder is an extraordinary guy. I had actually got to admit, I'd never heard of Mackinder up until a few years ago. Uh, when um, the, the journalist Robert Kaplan, I um, was a big fan of Mackinder, and he, I read an article written about Mackinder, and I thought, oh, that sounds really smart. Um, and so I went off and read quite a few of Mackinder's things and was deeply impressed. And one of the things I uh, like most about Mackinder is I think he was one of the first people to recognize that while on a human time scale, physical geography 
kind of doesn't change. The, the physical geography of the world hasn't changed that much. Geography, nevertheless, does change radically through time. The, the importance of what particular physical things about the world means changes radically. And so something like, uh, you were mentioning with Spickman about the, the, U, the US and the importance of the US. Um, the fact that here we've got a state that borders both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. Yeah, this gives us this unique um, strategic position in the world, unique ability to project power around the globe. That, of course, Britain didn't have anything like that. But, of course, that only matters once you're at a stage of development where you can exploit these oceans, where you can reliably send your, your trade and your battle fleets across the Pacific Ocean, which is really, you know, it's, you're talking 19th century, really, by the time that becomes a major force. And so I, you know, one of the things that I, I thought Mackinder handled absolutely brilliantly was recognizing how these geostrategic factors change through time. And, of course, I mean, the, all the things you're saying about um, Germany and its position between the heartland and uh, the, the outer rim and how Germans are obsessed with the danger of being crushed between the two. People like Russians and French are obsessed with the danger that the Germans are going to get control of the, the other lot and unite, say, unite the heartland and the inner rim against France or unite the outer rim and the inner rim against Russia. Um, but these things change over time. And uh, you know, some of the recent developments suggest maybe Germany's strategic dilemma has not changed quite as much as we thought it had. But um, th these are things that change over time. And I, I thought that, that's the, the great lesson that Mackinder taught. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much. By the way, uh, nobody reads Mackinder any longer at the LSE, but they all read him in Beijing and Moscow, I've noticed recently, which tells you quite a lot about Mackinder, I think. Uh, uh, Mary Calder and then uh, Richard Cooper, uh, Robert Cooper, sorry. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much for a wonderful lecture. Thank you. I, I love big picture lectures. <laughs> Waiting for the butt, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> well, my butt has to do with how you define the forces underlying these patterns, because what struck me was that your first two phases were very different from your second two phases. Mm -hmm. Your first two phases seemed to be about how people live, agriculture and foraging, whereas your second two phases seemed to be about geography. And as a great fan of Gellner, his key point was that what changed this little description of the agricultural world was industry. Mm -hmm. That nationalism for him, he, he has this great quote, it's not class, but nationalism that's the product of modern industry. And it seemed, I, I just wondered why you chose not to do industry. And then, you know, now we could say, well, it's modern, the new phase is all about modern communications. And maybe we're going back to a Galnerian model in which there's a global English-speaking transnational elite and lots of local different languages, rather like there was in the agricultural phase. So my question is about, you know, why suddenly do you shift to geography rather than sort of right. socioeconomic patterns? We'll take that one and then roll. And, uh, and it, it seemed to me, um, adding to, to that, because I'm a Gellnerite too, that... Um, the, with industry, of course, you get different sources of energy, and that's in your book title as well. Um, but then I wondered if your next age, if there isn't going to be some impact of climate change that needs to be filtered mm -hmm. in. But then finally, I'm still worrying about the title because I was hoping to hear about what sort of great power it was 
we needed, whereas it seemed to me you just got the kind of great power that you got. For American hegemony by you there, Robert, is it? <laughs> well, those are, those are great okay. questions, and when, when I found the, I tend when I tend to say um, somebody asks a great question, what it usually means is it gives me an opportunity to advertise my books to people to buy. Uh, is, um, I, 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 the, the first question I, mean, I do, would, uh, would agree very much with what you're saying, and yeah, I think um, I rather. Um, to, uh, skipped over a little bit the, the importance of the Industrial Revolution in this story because uh, I felt that if I didn't do that we would be here all night. I was going on too much. But um, I just recently published a book called Foragers, Farmers and Fossil Fuels which is available for sale after the lecture at a very reasonable price um, which is basically arguing exactly the, the way you were presenting yes, the agree. argument except you presented it much more succinctly and clearly than I did in the book. Um, but yes, I think the, um, the, the sort driving this story of increasing scale um, that I was telling in the lecture tonight uh, that rests on another story of increasing levels of capture of energy from the world around us and there have been these th you know, three major systems of this, one the, the foraging system driven by um, extracting your energy just from wild plants and animals uh, where um, it's very unusual for foraging societies to extract more than, say, somewhere between five and 8,000 kilocalories of energy per day per person from the environment around you. Then the farming societies where you've got domesticated plants and animals, some of which drive the level of energy capture up a little bit above 30,000 kilocalories per day, places like the ancient the Roman Empire, Song Dynasty, China. And then um, tapping into the energy trapped in fossil fuels. That allows you to drive the level of energy capture up to... Uh, in the modern U.S., more than 230,000 kilocalories per day. You know, luckily, only, only some of which we eat, um, the bulk of which goes to power our iPads and Hummers and planes to bring me here and all this sort of thing. But, yeah, I, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. That energy capture is what drives this larger story and what ultimately the scale of societies um, rests on. And... Um, the transformations of energy capture in the 21st century, I'm moving on to the, the, the second question, the transformations of energy capture in the 21st century, I think are likely to prove decisive in how exactly this story turns out uh, and how the increasing scale of societies works out and what kind of organization is going to work best within that world. And I mean, obviously I'm not sticking my neck out particularly in suggesting that um, Fossil fuels made possible the world that we live in. All the good things we're used to are here because of fossil fuels. The fact that we no longer have a life expectancy at birth in the low 20s, we owe that to fossil fuels. However, if we continue burning fossil fuels, we will destroy the whole planet and we will go back to having a life expectancy in the low 20s. So something has to change um, in the, the system of energy extraction and something has to change in the organization of interstate relations. And I think, yeah, I mean, you're... Uh, if we're going to understand what kind of um, what kind of great powers we get in the late 21st century, um, the systems of energy capture are going to be absolutely vital to this. Um, my friends in Silicon Valley assure me, and they would not lie to me, uh, they assure me that we can rely on uh, dramatic advances in solar energy over the next 50 years, and everything will become great. Because, because I mean, ultimately, all of our energy systems 
are based on solar energy. And just we're going to get much, much better at capturing it. And if they're right, then uh, that potentially has tremendous implications for, uh, for the system of international relations. But yes, I was a little timid uh, on that point in my conclusion because I don't actually have uh, a prediction to make on exactly how that's going to turn out. Okay, I've got two. There's one down here and one at the back. Yeah. Danny. Oh, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, Danny Kwa, LSE Economics Department. Hi. Um, I wanted to press you a little bit on your view that everything will be different going forwards. And in, to do that, I'm drawing an analogy uh, with your answer to those who had asked about asymmetric warfare. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if instead we might be going back to an interim and heartland system. And the analogy I'm trying to draw is the following. Today, in the heartland or the inner rim, depending on how you look at it, we live in an internet information infrastructure-driven society. Everything that we do is built on our internet infrastructure. It is you know, more pervasive than anything else we've seen. It is global and more far-reaching. But at the same time, we've become even more dependent on it at individual fragile switch points. And I wonder if those switch points are going to be our undoing in the sense that cyber warfare can be conducted by individuals or small groups of hackers, the way Anonymous rose in opposition to Daesh, for instance, after Paris. They are now the equivalent, the counterpart of the nimble, modern nomad horse archers that used to wreak such damage to the lumbering central powers. Are we back in that age? Are we heading towards that? Thank you. Mm. Thanks, Danny. And at the back? Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, you, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, you were talking about international relations and globalization and, I guess, sharing cultures. Um, I was wondering if, if your research throws any light on, on the following. In, in developing those international relations, Western Europe seems to have shared all of its cultural genius, you know, biology, Darwin and Crick, um, physics, Newton, you know, the German quantum physicists, you know, all of that good stuff, you know, democracy, socialism, communism. We seem to have shared pretty much everything that people hold dear across the world with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And, 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 it, and it looks like we've never, you know, we've, we've never had it the other way around. So in spite of that sharing, and you know, international relations, um, it looks like no contrib- in spite of that, no contribution to the same degree of Western European genius was ever made outside of Western Europe. I was just wondering if your research sh- sheds any light on right. what, what, yeah, yeah, why yeah, that, that strange that, phenomenon seems to occur. I saw some quizzical heads around the room on that one, but we'll come on now. Okay, well, this is two, 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 two very unprovocative yeah, questions. Two, two Great, very yeah, different yeah. questions this time. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, your point about um, the, uh, the in- internet vulnerabilities and cyber warfare, cyber warriors is kind of a new version of Genghis Khan. Uh, that, that's a really interesting. I'd never thought about it in quite that way. I mean, I've talked to um, a number of people, uh, uh, Stanford, you know, like, 
a lot of the big U.S. universities has a lot of connections with the military world. We get a lot of military people coming through. And I had an opportunity to talk to a number of people about their, their predictions about where cyber warfare are going. And certainly there's not much agreement between them, but one of the things they do all seem to agree on is that offensive capabilities are massively more developed than defensive at the moment. And it's um, possible, as you were saying, not just for great state actors like China or the U.S. to take down entire countries' um, electricity grids, but potentially possible even for actors well below the level of the state. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I never actually thought about it in these terms before, but there is a certain similarity here, as you, you point out. This is something I, I will have to think about. Um, yeah, so I don't know, but that's a really good question. Uh, and then the second question, moving quickly along here, uh, the second question, um, your point about your Western culture being shared across the world. Now, it seems to me, and does my research shed any light on this? I, I feel that it does. It seems to me that what you're saying is absolutely true as long as you limit your perspective to the last few hundred years. Before that, it ceases to be true at all. And I think that what's happened um, with... What, what, we, you know, what we now call the Western institutions, Western culture, Western values, I, mean, I think in some ways it's more useful to think of these as, as modern culture and institutions and values. The kind of things associated, I mean, coming back to the early question, associated with industrialized societies. And the first industrialized societies happen to be in Western Europe, so we, we tend to call these, uh, these things Western. But I would say what we've seen the last couple of hundred years is just the latest and biggest version of a pattern we see going back many thousands of years. And this is a pattern where soft power tends to follow hard power. So any part of the world, any period of history, whichever society goes out and bashes everybody else and creates the biggest empire, that is the society whose values and culture become most admired by the societies around it, which sounds horribly cynical, but it's absolutely true. And you look at the Roman Empire, um, one of the big argument topics among Roman archaeologists is, is Romanization, the spread of Roman culture across Europe, Near East, North Africa. Um, as the Roman Empire expands, people start emulating Roman ways of doing things. And the Romans were very aware of this, wrote a lot about it. If you look at East Asia, um, as China gets unified into a single empire, um, uh, and particularly the, the, the early Han Dynasty empire in China, you get the spread of Chinese culture, values, institutions to societies around them. And um, you know, plenty of other examples we can look at as well. The, the, the creation of the early Muslim caliphates. Um, plenty of other examples we can look at. And in every case, I think this I would say there's two things going on. One is the uh, this sort of very cynical thing. People admire the biggest bully on the block. And uh, the values and institutions of the biggest power on the block are the ones that people flock to. And not a very nice thing to say, but it seems to be true. And the second is that a lot of the time, the at least some of the institutions and cultural developments of the biggest power on the block simply are superior to the rivals available, uh, the rival versions available. So, like, European science and mathematics were simply superior to the competitors. And um, plenty of people were emulating what Europeans were doing because Europeans were the richest and most successful societies in the world in the 19th century. But there was also a sense in, that in which a lot of what they were emulating was simply superior to what was available locally. And I think you, know, you look 
internally. So the things going on in East Asia in the late 19th century. Uh, and they, again, they can be paralleled going back far into history in other parts of the world. You get these huge debates over why is it that these Europeans have shown up and blown everything up and taken everything over. And some will say uh, that it's, well, it's simply because they've got these nasty weapons. They're more violent than us. They've got these nasty weapons. We get their weapons. We'll be able to stand up to them. Others will say, um, no, there's a whole package of values and forms of behavior here that, at least in the world we currently live in, are more effective than what we've got locally. And so, say, in the late 19th century, um, you get the debates between these two ways of looking at it going on everywhere. But in each place, uh, one version or the other tends to win out. So in China, people, the, the elites in China, tend to conclude in the late 19th century, um, Western civilization is decadent and horrible, but they have good guns. So if we buy some of their guns, everything will be fine. And that, well, we know how that turned out. People in Japan um, tend to say, this is a, a package deal here. This is an institutional cultural framework. We must find a way to bring that framework into our society. And some of us, something like the ones I mentioned who say, let's all speak English, uh, do this in this very wild way, want to just become Western in a sense. Whereas others say, no, 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 the way to do this is to understand how this whole package works and then understand how we can bring European forms of behavior into Japan without ceasing to be Japanese. And you know, every, I say every country works out its own, um, its own solution to this problem. And I think we were seeing the whole thing starting to unfold again in the early 21st century, as, particularly as China gets richer and more powerful. Um, there are some people who will say, well, China will inevitably become more Western as it gets richer and more powerful because that's what rich and powerful societies are like. Then there are others who say, you look back through history, it's always been the richest and most powerful society that sets the global, the cultural trends of the societies in contact with it. So as China becomes richer and more powerful, we're going to see the Easternization of the West, not the Westernization of the East. So yeah, yeah I would say the, the, the work I've been doing does cast some light on this. And I think, it, like a lot of things, the pattern looks very different when you look at the at least the 5,000-year version rather than the 500-year version. Okay, we've got two final questions. person up there and somebody over here. Yeah, I'll take two together. If you could be brief, please, thanks. Uh, hello, okay. Uh, thank you for the lecture, first of all. I really like the analysis of the historian process. So, but there is really one thing, because I really like to think that history is made by people choices. Oh. And they are made... And this is a really random variable in all of this. So forecasting can be really difficult and, whoa, it's, yeah, it's, okay. it's really hard to, to say what's going on. And we have, for this, I would like to propose an example. Like, Just a very small yeah, one, please. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The fall of the Roman Empire, the, the most asked question every time in every history lectures in every type of school, like an explanation in this type of pattern. Because... There was not a change in the technological way, but there are many other reasons, not only the barbarian invasion. Don't, don't go into all the reasons for the fall of the <laughs> Roman Empire. <Would> be <laughs> it's very good. Where are the human beings? I mean, that's it. Where's the agency? Where's the actors in this? It's this very structural explanation. One final one up here. Yep. Yeah, that's you. you. Um, Nobody hi. above you. It's you. Um, sorry, it's quite a multifaceted question, but I will try and keep it brief in the interest. Good. Scott's oh, recommendation. First of all, thank you very much for the talk. That was very interesting. Thank you. Uh, particularly the scale of your analytical frame, the whole 20,000 years of, anal of analysis. Um, what I wanted to kind of clarify, um, 
kind of you I noticed in the actual presentation you talked about there was a general trend in the size of political communities between I think it was 1 AD and 1400 AD. I wanted to know in the course of your research do you th have you found that there is a general upward trend in the size of political community obviously from hunter-gatherer societies through to modern Westphalian sovereign state. And in regards to your prediction about that the future of the political order won't be about global governance, mm. but that there will be a continuing growing significance for supranational international structures of cooperation, like how does that... I mean, I'm thinking of Huntington's clash of civilizations mm -hmm. in this, like the development of an eventual like, like super block of cultural sort of power, but what do you think regarding the general trend upwards in, of political community? Thanks very much. Okay, we'll have to conclude on that. And oh, well, thank Ian, you. Ian, over yeah. to you to make any concluding comments as well. Good, yeah, good, good, good closing question. So yeah, history made by people and um, scale and forms of integration and so on. So yeah, history made by people. Yeah, clearly history is made by people. Um, it'd be hard to <laughs> deny that. And uh, I guess what, what I, I mean, this is something, you know, writing these 20,000 year plus books, um, this is something that I've you know, had to confront and think about this question quite a bit now. And it um, seems to me, from your writing a number of these books, that uh, the sort of analysis I'm doing here, this operates best on the really big scale. <laughs> uh, and that the more you burrow down into smaller times and places, the more the, the vagaries of what individuals decide, the, the more these things matter. And so, like, I mean, say within our individual lives, you know, we all make choices all the time. I think anybody who denies we have free will is just insane. I can't understand why people say this. We all have free will. We can decide to do absolutely anything. You could decide tomorrow to become a hunter-gatherer. You could go out and abandon whatever it is you do for a living, abandon that, go out and start hunting wild animals and gathering wild plants in central London. Sure. Now, that is... Interesting, but... And the people who love you. This is going to have enormous consequences. You are going to die really soon. Ah. Your, your, your loved ones will, will suffer your loss. Another enormous, prediction, another prediction. Enormous another consequences prediction. for you. But for the future of the global system of international relations, I'm afraid your choice has no consequences whatsoever. <laughs> and this, I think, That's sadly, it's sad to say. And this, I think, is true in... I mean, obviously, this is a slightly extreme example I'm taking here. <laughs> but this is true all across the board. I mean, you can say, say the decisions of a particular emperor or president or prime minister can have <clears throat> catastrophic consequences for that country. You can decide in 1956 that invading the Suez Canal is a really good idea. And um, discover, oh, I was mistaken about that. And this has enormous consequences for your country. But how much of an impact on the development of the global system of international relations did the Suez blunder have? Not that much. And I think th this is true of basically any kind of question you can look at. The more you're dealing with the 10, 20,000 year scale, the more the individual decisions start to become the background noise. And so I think the bigger the scale you look at, the less the individual agency matters, the more the study of history starts to look like the study of biological evolution. And when I say that, it makes all my colleagues in history departments want to kill me. But I think this is absolutely true. I can't uh, so I will leave that topic immediately. And I go to the other question as quickly as I can about... Um, and the, the changing scale in the uh, in the 21st century, and if we're not, if I don't think we're moving toward a global government, then 
what exactly do I have in mind? And um, I think one, one of the most interesting things that you see with this you know, long-term history of the increasing scale of political organization, scale both in terms of numbers of people and geographical areas, is how uh, quantitative change in terms of the scale always goes along with qualitative change. As the systems, the organizations get bigger, they change dramatically. And the, the Gelnerland thing is the example I talked about most tonight. But um, I think another really big example of this is, say, as we move from, say, 1500 to, to 1800, um, the size of the biggest organizations in the world, the, the, the empires run by um, Western European powers, these things get enormously bigger. And for the first time, you're getting truly global organizations developing. And as this happens, the most effective way of organizing really large-scale um, organizations, this starts to change as well. And this, I think, was the, the, the genius of what Adam Smith did, was seeing that the old way of generating the wealth of nations, where you conquer somebody, you plunder them thoroughly, and then once they recover from being conquered, you just tax them and you make a lot of money, or you can make a closed mercantilist trading system. That no longer applies in the 18th century when you get in these global empires. And he always suggests this radical idea that the best thing the British could possibly do, uh, although he says, I know you're never ever going to do this. Best thing you can do is walk away from the American colonies. Just let them go. And then we'll have this um, North Atlantic trading system, much bigger market, much finer division of labor. Britain will be much richer because of this international market. And um, fortunately for Smith, of course, his book comes out in the year that the American Revolution begins, so <laughs> the British don't actually have to make a choice here. It's presented to Britain. Um, and I, I'll probably get the dates wrong. I think by 1789, I think um, already the scale of revenue Britain was generating from North Atlantic trade was back to pre-revolutionary levels. Smith, of course, has proved right. And I think this is one of the big things that happens as the scale of the organizations explodes, becomes global in the 18th century, that more and more um, the most important form of integration starts becoming commercial and economic rather than directly political. And that's why I, mean, I, I would say even though there are more nation states and more independent governments in the world now than ever before, we simultaneously live in a world that is in a really meaningful way more integrated than ever before. That Economic and to some extent cultural globalization are gradually becoming more important than the nation-state system. And uh, again, obviously I realize a lot of people would disagree with this, but this is why I think that um, the forms of integration we're going to see operating at a global scale in the 21st century, that the power, the political power of nation-states is going to be increasingly pushed into the background and the economic sources of power will become more important. And actually, it wasn't Michael Mann an LSE guy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so another LSE great, Michael Mann the sociologist. Yeah. This is basically what he sort of says as well. So on the note of great LSE people, I should, I should probably stop there. The, the, only, the only conclusion I have then, Ian, is why aren't you here too? You know, I mean, we well, could add you to well, that pantheon, you well, know, hasn't rather than staying you? in, you know, the, the far west fringes of a, the outer rim of the United States. <laughs> However, <laughs> well, let me make a few announcements before, 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 please. Uh, firstly, the announcement for the next lecture on the 9th of February. We've got bloodshed, 20,000 years of it. And then on the 15th of March, two days before St. Patrick's Day, we've got inequality, 20,000 years of that. Uh, more importantly, Ian did mention it, and I'll mention it again. Uh, this book, and I think the book on the West, uh, is outside. So if anybody wants to purchase a copy... Uh, you could bring it back up here for signing, if you could. Uh, 
I'd also like to thank all of you for coming along tonight in this last teaching week, at least for the LSE. Most importantly, I'd like to thank our lecturer this evening, Ian Morris. Thank you very much, Ian.